Someone comes seeking your help, maybe even asking your advice. Instead of giving your best answer, you may consider being humble and staying curious. On this episode, Michael Bungay Stanier on avoiding the advice trap and the invitation to be more coach-like. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 458. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One aim all of us have is to be more coach-like in our leadership so that we can really help elicit the best out of others. And the person who probably is the uh, world's expert on coaching is Michael Bungay Stanier. He's been on the show many times before, and he is back with some new work on how to help us to be more coach-like. I am thrilled to welcome Michael back to the show today. Michael is at the forefront of shaping how organizations around the world make being coach-like an essential leadership competency. His book, The Coaching Habit, is the best-selling coaching book of this century with over 700,000 copies sold and 1,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. In 2009, he was named the number one thought leader in coaching by Thinkers50. Michael was also the first Canadian coach of the year and has been named a global coaching guru since 2014. He grew up in Australia, went to school in the UK, and now lives in Canada, which is why he's such a nice dude with a really weird accent. He's the author of the new book, The Advice Trap, Be Humble, Stay Curious, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. Mr. Bungay Stanier, always a pleasure to have you back, sir. Dave, it is so good. This is one of my all-time favorite podcasts, and the fact that I'm back for my 93rd episode, <laughs> I am... And basically, I figure I'm actually making a run-in on your marriage with Bonnie because I know Bonnie is a, you know shows up every is it every month that you do an episode with her? It is every month. Yeah, I think you're probably close to qualifying for a tote bag or something at this well, point. I, that's what I'm after. That's the big prize. I mean, sure, number one thought leader in coaching, but whatever. What we all really want is the tote bag. You know, it's amazing what people will do for a tote bag. So, And before I get lots of emails from people seeking tote bags, we should probably dive in on this new book, sure. The Advice Trap. Yeah. So a lot of people in our audience get asked for their advice a lot. Mm-hmm. What's the trap that you see leaders falling into? Well, the trap is thinking that your advice is as good as you think it is. <laughs> and it's really important and worth saying right up front, there's nothing inherently wrong with advice. Advice is you know, kind of how civilization has worked. So let's not think that I'm saying never give advice. I think that's one of the myths and fallacies that can sometimes float around the world of coaching. The problem, the advice trap, is when your default response to a conversation or an interaction is to give advice. Somebody starts talking and you can just feel that thing inside you that's making you go, oh, 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 I think I've got something to say. I think you need to hear what I'm about to tell you. And you know, the ch- what I try and champion, being more coach-like, is can we help everybody stay curious a little bit longer and rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? So that's the big trap we're looking to avoid. Not, not giving advice, but can you just make sure that when you give advice, it's a mindful, deliberate act, and it's the right thing to do at the right time. And I'm guessing you see people run into this too, that they are being asked a lot for advice and they, when we have a conversation about this, they'll say something like, well, well, people are 
asking me for my advice. <laughs> <Exactly>. So <laughs> how do you parse that when you have that conversation? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not just when I run into people, it's when I look at myself in the mirror <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, let's not, let's not pretend for a moment that I'm somehow masterfully conquered all of this. I still get suckered by this all the time. When somebody comes up to you for advice, I mean, I can give you a really practical tool right away. You know, Dave comes up to me and he goes, Michael, you're, you're so good. You're so good looking and you have all those tote bags. You're amazing. Look, I need your help. I need your suggestion on this thing. And inside me, I'm like, oh, this is awesome because I know a bunch about the thing that they've just asked me about and I get to give advice and I've got some really cool solutions. But in this moment lies peril. Because in this moment, a couple of things are going on. The first is just because Dave said he's my problem, I, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's actually the problem. And in fact, often it's not the problem. The first challenge is actually rarely the real challenge. Secondly, at this stage, your, your advice is highly overrated. You don't, you don't know anything. You don't know the context. You don't know the people. You don't know the situations. You don't know the technical specifications. You've just made an enormous leap from, oh, I heard a few key words there. Oh, I think I've got some suggestions on how to get this done. So when somebody comes to you and goes, hey, Michael, here's my problem. I need some ideas. Well, you've got two paths in front of you. The first is you can say, huh, why don't I... Why don't I dig a little deeper into figuring out what the real challenge is? Because that's a, a place that I can definitely be useful and helpful in this conversation. And we'll go back to one of the questions there that is in the coaching habit. And we go into a deeper dive in, in the, the advice trap, which is, hey, what's the real challenge here for you, Dave? Mm -hmm. But you might say, you know what? Actually, Dave knows the problem or we've done the work around the problem and we, we think we've got it defined. And Dave goes, this is definitely my problem, Michael. Tell me your best answers. Here's what I say. I've got a script in my head that I've learned. I go, Dave, this is a great challenge. I love that we're dealing with it. I'm going to help you as best I can. And I've got some ideas, some amazing ideas, Dave. You're going to love them when I tell them to you. But before I give you my first idea, I'm, I know you've got some ideas. What ideas do you already have? Give me, give me one right off the top of your head. Uh, Dave will have something. And I'll go, Dave, that's, I love it. That's great. What else could you do? And then I go, what else could you do? Dave, this is fantastic. What else could you do? Dave, do you have any other ideas? Yeah, this is brilliant. And I will get Dave to show me his ideas and kind of decant what's already in his brain. And only then will I go, Dave, the, the, you have come up with a bunch of really good ideas there. Before, I've got one or two other things that I thought I might just add to the pile. What's brilliant about this is you're not being redundant, meaning you haven't offered up ideas that Dave's already got. Dave's actually generated them himself, which means he's more likely to own them and use them and understand them and act upon them. Secondly, you still get to add value by adding those different perspectives that you might have. And so you're ensuring that Dave gets what he wants or whoever it is out of, out of the conversation that you're, ha you're happening. One of the things that really jumped out at me in the advice trap is you detailing out what are some of the key reasons that your advice doesn't get results. And one of them that kind of left out at me was that you're displaying poor leadership. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Sure. I'll tell a story about Alan Mulally. So people may recognize the name Alan because he was the, uh, Alan Mulally because he was the CEO of, uh, of a division of Boeing. And then he got tapped to come in and rescue Ford when that Ford was going through the financial crisis and losing $17 billion a year or some immense amount of money. First ever. CEO of Ford, who wasn't part of the Ford family. And 
I saw him talk. I've seen him talk a few times. He's a, he's a smart, lovely man. And he is amazingly non-directive as a CEO. He's like, every time I think I have the answer, I've got to ask myself whether the best thing for me to do is provide the answer. Because there are three ways your advice goes wrong. Two we've kind of tapped on. One is a sense of you, you don't actually know what the real problem is. Secondly is even if you do know what the real problem is, your advice isn't nearly as good as you think it is. So it's worth staying curious a little bit longer so you get a better sense of what's going on and hearing other people's ideas so that when you offer your advice, it becomes more useful and more valuable. But even let's say miracles happen. And not only do you have the right challenge and the real challenge and the nuanced challenge, but you also have a brilliant idea, possibly the best idea to solve that problem. Then the question you have to ask yourself is, in this moment, what's the right act of leadership? Is the right act of leadership for me to be providing the best answer or for the person I'm coaching and leading and supporting to figure out their own answer that probably gets the job done? Might not be quite as good as your answer, but it's probably sufficient, probably okay. It probably will move you know, the ball down the field or whatever metaphor that you want to use there. And you really have a crossroads moment. I think there are times when you providing the answer is the right thing to do. You're like, this is it. I'm making the call. I think there are more times than you realize where you biting your tongue and going, I've got a really good answer. But the big win is for this person to have the insight, feel empowered, feel ownership, try out their own idea, learn from that experience and grow in their confidence and their competence and autonomy. And that's what, you're, that's what you're playing for. That's why you listen to this podcast, because you know that the big win isn't you getting a task done. It's you having people around you who grow and become more competent and confident, self-sufficient and ambitious and connected to their great work. That's success, because if you win that game, not that you also get all the stuff done and you also get all the right stuff done. You've been on the show before talking about the seven key questions from The Coaching Habit. One of the things we haven't talked about before, though, is how to really be more coach-like in being ruthless in finding the real challenge. Yeah. You identify some things you call foggy fires. Am I saying that right? (laughs) You are. When I was reading through them, two of them I hear all the time. One of those two is coaching the ghost. Tell me about what coaching the ghost is and what people run into when that happens. Yeah, coaching the ghost is a, a really insidious trap when you're trying to be more coach-like, when you're trying to show up and be helpful and leaderly and be a coach. And it sounds something like this. Dave comes into my office and goes, ah, oh, Michael, Bonnie is driving me crazy right now. And I go, <laughs> oh, yeah, Bonnie, I get it. Tell, so, I mean, what's she doing? And Dave goes, ah, oh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what Bonnie's doing. Blah, 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 Bonnie, Bonnie, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, nightmare. What else is she doing? And I heard about this good what else question. And you're like, Bonnie, Bonnie, blah, blah, Bonnie, 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 blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I have no idea how you're coping with this, but what else is she up to? And Dave's like, oh. And so we have this intense 25-minute conversation about Bonnie and how she's driving Dave crazy for whatever reason. Obviously not this Dave and this Bonnie, different Dave and different Bonnie. (laughs) But at the end of the 25 minutes, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves because we're obviously morally and ethically and intellectually superior to this Bonnie person. 
But actually, we haven't really moved the conversation on. We've, in fact, just in some ways just recreated a drama triangle, a rescuer, a victim, Bonnie's become the persecutor. And it may feel like you're being helpful. It may feel like you're being a, a coach-like support. But I'm going to say not really, or at least not as effectively as you might have done it. Because the, the interesting person in this conversation is not Bonnie. It's Dave and how Dave is dealing with Bonnie. So what's interesting is if Dave comes into my office and goes, Michael, i got to tell you about Bonnie. I'm like, ah, sure, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Dave, what's the challenge for you in working with Bonnie? Uh-huh. And Dave's like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. And I go, great, what else is difficult for you in working with Bonnie? And Dave's like, oh, well, and this is what I'm like, great. What, what else for you is difficult in, in, in this situation? Like, okay, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. So, Dave, what's the real challenge here for you? And now he's like, ah, you know, the real challenge is I'm not that great at giving feedback. It scares me. I don't know how to do it well. And I, I'm trying to figure out how, what's the best thing to say and how to say it. I'm like, great. Well, let's, let's see if we can solve that problem for you. And the focus has gone from being on the shiny thing, which is, you know, the ghost. And that can be a person, but it can be a situation as well. And it comes back to the person who's being coached, which is like, Right. What's hard? What's difficult about this for you? One of the key distinctions I'm hearing you say there is it's really easy for us to delude ourselves a bit into the illusion that we're coaching well because we're letting someone talk and that we're asking questions. Right. And to miss the point of really not trying the conversation to be about the person who's not present, but the conversation to come back to the person who's sitting right in front of you. That's exactly right. You know, where the, the role of being a coach is to help somebody wrestle with something, <laughs> get an insight about what's going on, find a way to move forward, you know, the, that combination of insight and action. And if we spend the whole time talking about the other person and kind of letting them, you know, complain or whatever it might be about the other person, we're not really providing insight about the situation, we're just providing a place for them to get that off their chest. Now, make no mistake, there can be a place where getting something off your chest is exactly what's required. You know, Dave comes, let's play this out. Dave comes into my cubicle and goes, Michael, ah, Bonnie, she's driving me crazy. And I'm like, Dave, I'd love to help. What what would be helpful for you here? He goes, look, I just need two minutes to just, get this off my chest. And I'm like, perfect, go for it. And David's like, Bonnie, Bonnie, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, Dave, I get it. Your two minutes are up. Do you need anything else from me? And he's like, no, I just had to say that out loud. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. just had to kind of you know, release the pressure because it was doing my head in. And I'm like, I'm glad I could help. Now get out of here because I've got other stuff to do. Yeah. And that's a different intervention. You could even call that coaching. But it's a question of kind of, do you know what you're doing and why you're doing it? Mm. Are you deliberately not going, so tell me more and what's the real challenge here? Because you got clear about what they wanted, which was, I just get this off my chest. I'm so glad you this came up because something that's closely related to this is that conversation like that happens. Maybe you're 15, 20 minutes in, or maybe even starts at the beginning and someone says, I'm so glad I got to say this, please don't tell them. Or maybe even right. leads the conversation with, you know, I, I want to tell you about so-and-so, but don't say I say said anything. How do right. you handle that when that comes up? It's hard to have a generic answer to that because sometimes you've got an obligation to tell that other person. 
if you're into that conversation and they go, but please don't tell them, and you're like, you know, I, I'm going to tell them, <laughs> and there may be a number of reasons for that. I do think you are obliged in that moment to have that negotiation, to have that conversation, to say, you know what, I need to tell them something about this conversation. So let's have a conversation about what I can, what I will tell them, what I won't tell them, and we can negotiate that now.、Uh. I, I will say that most of the time, I work on the assumption that what gets said between me and another person is for me and that other person, and in part that's because Dave, I'm trying to stay out of drama triangles. <laughs> Uh, I get seduced by the drama triangle as much as anybody else. But if I like, okay, Bonnie came to me and went, "Oh God, Dave's a nightmare." Blah 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 blah. And I'm like, I get it.、Um, and then I go, "Hey, Dave, I just had this conversation with Bonnie." And blah 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 blah. And now Dave's like, "Well, what, why didn't Bonnie come to me?" And now Dave goes off and talks to Jackie and goes, "I don't know. Michael's a bit of a nightmare. I don't know whose side he's on anymore."、And、suddenly, it all gets kind of complicated. So I, I'd say that in answer to your question, most of the time I'm like,、uh, this is just between you and me. That's my job. If I do say, because sometimes you know, in my role at Boxer Crayons, for instance, I've been in a. I need this. I need the head of whatever needs to know about this. I'll be really explicit about it and say, this is what I'm going to be saying to them, and this is what I, this is what I won't be saying to them.、Mm. And just being really apparent in the moment of what that is versus. Like you said, that to go down the path of trying to mediate between two people who aren't neither、right. who's present is probably not helpful in most situations, <laughs>、yeah. right? And my memory is hopeless. So me trying to be tricky about any of this and trying to remember all the things I've said I would and won't do, it's, it's just never going to work. I'm just going to betray myself within the first two minutes. So part of this is just a self protection piece, which is trying to stay out of drama triangles, trying to hold some integrity, trying to not rely on my memory about what I promised to do or not do. Six or seven years ago, one of my colleagues at Dale Carnegie at the time said to me, in as a passing comment, "So many people are asking me in classes about how to get other people to stop talking so much." And、right. I thought, "Oh, that's interesting." And I wrote an article about it and put it up on our website. And to this day, Michael, it's now six years later, and it's not even that great an article. Other than our homepage, is the number one hit as of this week still on、That's、the website,、right. and it is for me just a reminder of the other fog of fire that really jumped out at me, which is Epicene. <laughs> Tell yeah, me about、exactly. Epicene because this is something that so many of us run into. And you know what? We we actually in the very final version of the book that came out, the advice trap, we changed the name of it. It's now yarning, as in、yeah. telling a yarn. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. So this is what that sounds like. And I love that you brought this up. Somebody comes into your life, cubicle, office, phone, whatever it might be, and you, because you read the coaching habit, you go, "Hey, what's on your mind?" And they go, "Ah,、oh, my goodness, what a day! I mean, it started really early. I mean, I, I don't have an alarm clock. Well, I do have an alarm clock. I've got this new alarm clock. It's just <laughs> bought it from the shop down the road. And what's cool is it's digital, but instead of white numbers, it's gone to red numbers. And so apparently." Because the way light works, red is less intrusive when you're sleeping. So I had it set for five o'clock, but I was up at four. And why was I up at four? Well, our bedroom's not that far from the kitchen, and we got this new ice maker installed in the refrigerator. And you would think by now they would have figured out the technology about how to make ice, but apparently <laughs> no. So at four o'clock in the morning, the fridge is going ah, and so this conversation is going. And of course,、yeah. you're on the other end of this, going, well, I mean, on the one hand. 
Michael has a very complicated morning ritual routine, apparently. But part of you is going, oh, well, look, on the one hand, he's, re he's really into the story and he's talking a lot. And I've been told that I should listen more than I talk. So yes, and, and, yes. I'm doing, and I'm doing my best active listening kind of look. So I've got my head tipped on the side and I look like I care about what's being said. And at the same time, you're thinking, if I ask and what else, I'm going to be here for another 50 minutes. Yeah, I'm like, do not ask and what else because I haven't even said anything yet. And it's still, it's only quarter past four in the morning. What's this conversation about? And are we ever going to get there? And there's this, I mean, this kind of circles back to something you said right at the start of the call, which is like, don't think because you've got somebody talking that you're in a good coaching conversation. Uh, it might be just rabbiting on. Yeah. And we uh, all have at least one and sometimes two or three people in our lives and, and right. almost certainly someone we work with that yeah, totally. is, that falls into that trap either and, all the time or a lot. Two things are going on. The first is some people are just talkers and you need to manage that because you have a life and you actually don't have 40 minutes to hear the background lead up to whatever's actually going on here. The second thing, more subtle, uh, more insidious, is you as the coach, the person asking the question, actually kind of want to hear all this detail because you're still holding on to this idea that your job is to have the answer to the problem. And you're thinking to yourself, the more data I have, the better I am, I the better advice I'm going to be able to offer up. And if you keep coming back to the fact that often the most valuable thing you will be doing is not being the person who comes up with a fast, wrong answer, but a person who has the discipline to figure out what the real challenge is and get us there faster rather than slower. And then it gives you a clue as to what to do, which is basically you've got to stop this. <laughs> you've got to stop this ongoing epicking slash yarning slash the endless talking and go, we've got to get to the heart of the challenge here. So you've got to learn how to interrupt. Now, let me ask you, Dave, what did you recommend in terms of when you run into people who just talk too much? One of the pieces of advice, uh, actually, both of them you've already alluded to, one of them was help them land the plane because my experience has been that people who tend to talk a lot don't know how to land the plane sometimes. Right. And so if you can help them, one of the things I learned as a Carnegie instructor is, and what happened next and what finally happened? So what does this mean or some version of that, which signals, let's, let's wrap up the conversation. The yep. other piece of advice, and I was also taught this as a Carnegie instructor, is everyone does need to breathe at some point. Almost always, if you like really paying attention, there's some point where there's a tiny bit of a breath, and that's the point to jump in and ask that question or interrupt or signal it's time for, you know, you've, you've got however many minutes you've got left. And that that can provide a good signal to someone to, okay, let's wrap it up. But I don't think it's perfect in every situation. And I'm sort of curious how you do this because... Well, Dave, actually, let me interrupt you. Yeah. And I can tell you how I, how I do that. And I do it just like that. I say, let me interrupt you. <laughs> and then I interrupt them. So two things are required to do this. The first is to give yourself permission to interrupt. And sometimes we need to do that because... We think that our job is to listen and not interrupt because that would be rude. You're like, no, no, your job is to serve the good of this conversation. And sometimes the most vital thing for you to do is stop the flow, interrupt, and get onto something that matters. Secondly, I have found, weirdly enough, that, and I think this is a technique, I, I, I just watched kind of professional journalists interviewing people and going, how do they do this? Because they've got, you know, time is money. They can't let somebody rabbit on if you've got a, 
six-minute segment on a TV, and they just signal their interruption as the interruption. They say, let me stop you for a minute. Let me interrupt you. Let me just jump in here. I've just, I'm just going to stop you there. And saying that phrase, and if you're actually with them in, kind of in person or actually on the video, you can actually signal by sticking your hand up or sticking your finger up, and it will stop people in their tracks almost always. Unless they're professional politicians who are like, no, I'm going to just keep talking because that's what I do. I, you know, I hit my, my message and I just talk over people. But you know, you're not going to bump into professional politicians when you're doing this work. Yeah. So that's the secret. I really appreciate the invitation to frame this not just as I'm here to listen, but that I am here for the good of the conversation. You've got to hold the bigger picture, which is like, I mean, this takes me to a, a related piece, which is the bugbear I have that sometimes coaching is kind of phrased as this, it's the soft form of leadership. It's kind of, you know, all about just appreciating people type of leadership. And I'm like, that's just a bad misunderstanding of what coaching is at its best. And when I'm coaching people and I'm setting that relationship up, I would say to the person that I'm, I'm working with, the phrase I have to define this relationship is fierce love. Love meaning I have your back and that the game I am playing is your betterment in the world. I want you to be the the full expression of who you are at your very best. I want you to not just hit the goals you're setting yourselves, but I want you to find new ways of being. That's what I'm I'm there for. That's the love side. You've got to know that I am on your side. Mm. The fierceness comes from a piece going, you know what? That doesn't mean I'm going to be nicey-nice. It means that I'm going to do what it needs to say to push you, to provoke you, to challenge you, to encourage you, to support you in a way that gets you there. And I think you can bring that way of thinking into this idea around how you manage a conversation, which is like, my job is not to be liked by you. My job is not to be nice. My job is not to be just, you know, your listening post. My job is to say, how do I move your life on? Because in having this conversation, that's what we're here for. That's what we're signed up for. I can't let you go without asking you a bit about some of the neuroscience of engagement that's sure. in the book. And one of the key points you make is around expectation. Do I know what's going to happen or not? In keeping people engaged in a coaching conversation with you, what do you mean by expectation? Yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, the, the setup for this is, and this just draws on other people's work on neuroscience, and I've just tried to put it in my own language. Is to go, look, it starts off by people, your brain, my brain, Dave, everybody's brain, five times a second, is scanning the environment going, is it safe here or is it dangerous? Safe or dangerous? Safe or dangerous? That's it. It's this kind of deep, deep survival instinct. You know, it's your lizard brain. It's ancient. And it's biased. The bias is to assuming that if, if you're not sure, it's probably dangerous. So it's not a 50-50 reading. It's like, yeah. I'm hoping it's good. I'm hoping a place of reward, but it's probably a place of risk. So I'm looking to opt out anytime I can because I'm safer if I'm backing away rather than stepping forward. However, people at their best feel safe. People at their best feel rewarded. People at their best, their brains are smarter, more subtle, more nuanced, more generous, more appreciative, better able to make connections. You know, it's keeping your brain out of that fight or flight syndrome that we all know. So the four drivers that help the brain feel safe, and this is the terror model, I talk about it very briefly in The Coaching Habit, and then it's a bit of a deeper dive in the new book. Tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy. An expectation is where the brain is going, do I know what's about to happen, or do I not know? Do I know the future just a little bit, or not? If, the, if you can give people expectation, they feel safer. 
because they're like, oh, okay, I know what's about to happen. So in a coaching conversation or even a podcast conversation, you're like, right. And you did this with me. You're like, Michael, before you hit the record button, you're like, okay, I'm going to give you some rules. Don't swear like a pirate. Um, <laughs> if you make a mistake, we'll edit some of the stuff out. And so you gave me a whole lot of clarity and certainty about the podcast. It's just going to be about 40 minutes pops that make me go, oh, I know what's going to happen here. And of course, the fact that you and I have worked together and had conversations like this before and hung out in Encinitas together also sets up a degree of expectation, which is, I know what it's like to have a conversation with David. It's great. Right. So all of that, you can bring those tactics into thinking about any conversation you have, coaching or otherwise. You know, classic is feedback. If I say to you, Dave, I need to see you in my office. I've got some feedback for you. you know, your little lizard brain freaks out. <laughs> You're like, ah, what have I done? What's that going to be about? I'm going to be fired. I don't know what he's going to talk about. Yeah. But if I say, hey, Dave, I just want to talk to you about the last podcast episode. I've got three things I want to tell you. Two of them are awesome. One of them is just one small suggestion on what you could do better. I reckon it'll take us five minutes and let's do it at two o'clock. You're like, oh, you've just ticked off a whole bunch of things that have set expectations. And now you're like, you may not be totally relaxed, but you're mostly relaxed about the conversation. You make the point of the power of limited choice. Choice is good, but too much choice is paralyzing. Right. I'm thinking about what you just said. Someone asked me in the last week, how do you set up what you're going to talk about with guests? And I got to thinking about that. And it's really a lot of what you just said, Michael. When I go to someone who's an expert or make the invitation for them to be on the show, oftentimes I define what that conversation is going to be. And I'll give a couple of choices. But rather than trying to like cover someone's entire work or entire book, I'll say, here's right. the four pages of your book that leapt out at me. Let's have yeah. a conversation around this. Is that okay with you? And if not, here's an alternative. Exactly. So part of expectation, the fineness, the art of it is to give autonomy and set expectation. That's the tension in the terror model. Because autonomy is giving them choice. Expectation is giving them certainty. And there's an inherent tension around that. So when you say to me, hey, Michael, should we put the emphasis on the terror piece or should we put the emphasis on the fogger fires? You're striking a line between expectation, which is like, okay, these are the two things Dave wants to talk about, and choice, which is I get to choose which is number one and which is number two in the hierarchy of those topics. Yeah, it's, it's helpful to move things along, but also to give that autonomy, as you said. And I was thinking about thinking a lot about Carnegie examples here today. One of the things I was taught going in and working at Carnegie in conversations with customers for the first time is to show up with an agenda, not to assume that that was going to be figured out in advance, and to share the agenda that we had drafted. But then at the end, to say, in addition to this, is there anything you'd like to add or change on the agenda? And so right. we would do the, yeah. I've done the work to frame this conversation. And at the same time, I'm also inviting you to have input on what that looks like. Yeah. And part of the beautiful way that you're pointing to that is if you're smart, you do the work to control the bigger narrative. And then you give people lots of choices within the bigger narrative that you've defined, whether that's the agenda for a meeting or whether it's the focus for a podcast interview or whatever it might be. You're like, I know where we're starting and I know where we need to finish. You get to make some choices within that framework. And so much of leadership is about setting the larger narrative anyway, right? And then you know the, the management piece becomes the tactics. How do we get there? Yeah, uh, exactly right. Michael, so helpful. I can't <laughs> wait for uh, folks to dive in on the new book. We are going to be posting all of the links to 
the site with the book, uh, the resource you mentioned, all of your work at Box of Crayons so that folks can dive in on this as, as much as possible. All of that will be in this week's weekly leadership guide, of course. Michael, you know, I tend to ask at the end, what have you changed your mind on oh. as you've been working on this book over the last year or two? What's changed in your thinking in the last year? You know, the thing that's changed most is actually less affected by the book and, and more about something else that's happened to me, which is back in July 2019, I stopped being the CEO at Box of Crayons. I stepped away from that role, handed it on to Shannon, who's now the CEO. And in January 2020, I kind of stepped fully away from Box of Crayons other than staying in a kind of chair of the board role. So I have a much, much more hands-off relationship with Box of Crayons. And so the thing that I'm going to change my mind on, it's not just my mind, it feels like there's a whole bunch of identity kind of melting and reforming at the moment, is who am I in this world? Because even though I've always in my head gone, you know, I can see the difference between me and Box of Crayons. There's a lot of people who think of me as Michael, the box of crayons dude. And to take off that piece of clothing that I've worn so, so many years and gone, that's actually not me anymore. You know, here's a business card that doesn't have box of crayons on it. It just has my mbs.works website on that. That's what's changing, not just my mind, but it just feels like it's changing kind of cellular connections in my body and my brain. What showed up for you so far as you've thought about the who are you going forward? Well, it's, I'd say there's like two things. One is, and they're, they're kind of bittersweet combination. One is the freedom that comes with, with stepping away from an identity. I can feel a permission to be more creative, more carefree, more exploratory than I'd been as the CEO at Box of Crayons. And the second thing was the degree of sadness and I think probably mourning a loss of a community and a collection of people who I know and like and have enjoyed working with. Because for now, at least, my job is to really be absent from Box of Crayons. Because if I'm hanging out because I need to hang out with friends, my shadow is a long shadow. You know, my gravity is a heavy gravity. And I distort reality for people in Box of Crayons and I make life hard for Shannon. So part of it is around going... You've got to remember the bigger game you're playing here, which is for Box of Crayons to thrive as an organization. And for that, Shannon needs full permission to be the CEO in, in that com- complete way. So I get to miss out on some of the Box of Crayons community, and that's sad for me. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I so appreciate you also you know, always being so transparent with us of how much this is an ongoing practice for you. And as I read through the advice trap, every page, as I highlighted, I thought, yep, made that mistake this week. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And it's, it's so part of what I hope folks will take away from this conversation is the wonderful and beautiful quote you have from Gretchen Rubin there that what you do every day matters more than just what you do once in a while. And the invitation to make one shift today. And if you make one shift with a conversation, of thinking about how you might interrupt in an appropriate way for the larger purpose, that that is good work to be doing. And if you do that consistently, it makes a big difference over time. Beautiful. Michael Bungay-Stanier is the author of The Advice Trap. Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. Michael, thank you for your time. Dave Stahoviak is the coach and podcast guide and mentor and host, and he is awesome. Thank you, Dave. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 
If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is a past episode with Michael Bungay-Stanier, episode 284, The Way to Stop Rescuing People from Their Problems. That is a challenge almost all of us have faced many times in leadership, and people coming to us well-intended, wanting assistance, asking our advice, and of course, sometimes we find ourselves in that situation where we are rescuing people, solving the problem, maybe even doing the work for them. In episode 284, Michael and I talk about the art of how to handle that situation, what are some good tactics, and what are things you can do and say that'll be helpful to not only you, but also to develop the skills of the other person to handle situations more effectively. Episode 284, again, is where to go for that. I'd also recommend a conversation with Corinne Armour on episode 387, How to Stop Having the Same Problems. Related to that prior episode, Corinne and I talked in that conversation about some of the key questions you can ask in order to keep that from being a repeating pattern amongst your employees, amongst your team, and how to artfully navigate that well. Lots of ideas there in episode 387. Someone who's a great advocate for coaching is General James Mattis, a former Secretary of Defense, was on episode 440 talking about leadership in the midst of chaos. Jim in that episode made the point that he commanded about 15 minutes a day when he was a four-star general. The rest of the time was coaching, and he talks in detail in episode 440 on his philosophy around coaching and leading others. A great compliment to this conversation. And then finally, I'd recommend another compliment on a book that's also out recently. Uh, David Marquet was on the show on episode 454, teaching us how to ask better questions. David and I talked about some of the sins of deadly questions and how we can do better at asking cleaner questions. It's a great compliment to the advice trap, and David is a master at helping leaders use language well. Episode 454 is where to go for that. All of the episodes from the library since 2011 can be found on the coachingforleaders.com website, and there you can search the entire episode library by topic. Uh, Even the episodes that don't appear on the public directories anymore, you can dive in and get everything that's relevant to you right now. All you need to do is just set up your free membership. If you go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, you'll have access in about 30 seconds to the entire library, all of the weekly leadership guides that come on Wednesday, personally written by me, with all the resources I found during the week and the show notes, plus access to my own book notes. I read almost everything on Kindle these days, and when I'm reading, I'm highlighting and preparing for these conversations, and I share those with you. So all of those are available inside the free membership. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go for all of that. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Hortense Oljanti. She is here teaching us how to discover who we are. See you next week for that conversation. Have a great Monday.